If you would, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. The title of the message this morning is The Israel of God, Part 2. And no, there will not be ten parts like there were with the apologetics, just two. In our last sermon, I began to make a case, at least I hope I did, for the belief that the church is the new Israel of God, right? Perhaps it would be better stated that the church is the new spiritual Israel of God. Why would I say that? I'd say that so as to make sure we don't confuse the spiritual Israel of God that Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 6 verse 16 with the ethnic nation of Israel or with ethnic Jews anywhere else in the world for that matter. Simply put, when we say that the church is the Israel of God, we don't mean the ethnic nation of Israel. I want to make that clear. I'll say it again. When we say that the church is the Israel of God, we don't mean the ethnic nation of Israel. This is very, very important, which is why we're spending two weeks on it. Why? Because if we get this wrong, our understanding of God's entire salvific plan will be incorrect. I'm not saying that it'll be heretical, just not entirely correct. And if we get this wrong, our entire view of eschatology or end times can be or may lean towards being incorrect. Now, I realize that for some people, these are new terms and new phrases, but please don't let them or allow them to intimidate you in any way. I promise you that before we are through here this morning, you'll plainly understand these things, plainly. All I ask is that you follow along with me here and and trust me. We want to look at how these words and phrases pertain to Romans chapters 9 through 11, right? We've been studying those chapters as one block. Now, as I said two weeks ago, there are very well-respected Bible teachers, pastors, theologians, who believe that in the end, the entire nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, will be saved. And those who believe that typically use Romans chapter 11, verse 26. I'd like you to look there if you would, please. They use Romans eleven twenty-six as their main proof text for that belief. It's kind of the springboard or the beachhead for this doctrine. In verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And again, people take that to mean all ethnic Israel or the entire nation of Israel will be saved. 
Some take verse 26 to mean that all Jews will be saved no matter where they reside in the world. God will save every Jew. Now, does that mean that God will save all pedigree Jews only? Or does it mean that he will save people who are 60% Jewish, maybe 30% German, and 10% Italian? I'm not being flippant. I'm just trying to get you to see where the logic takes us if we follow this out to the nth degree in the times in which we live. Let me repeat it one more time. If we're incorrect in our interpretation of verse 26, we will also be incorrect about other very crucial doctrines and outcomes, future outcomes of Scripture. So we're going to examine it very, very closely this morning. And in doing so, add some important things to part one that I preached two weeks ago. We're going to ask the text questions, and believe it or not, the text is going to answer us. For example, the text says in Romans 11.26 that in this way all Israel will be saved. Paul says that. Now I'm going to ask the text a question. If by all Israel in this verse, verse 26, Paul does mean all ethnic Israel will be saved, then why does Paul say prior to this verse, in verse 14 of the same chapter, that he magnifies his ministry in order that somehow he can make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Not all of them, some of them. If Paul means that the entire ethnic nation of Israel will be saved in verse 26, then why would he say in verse 14 that he hopes to save some of them? I will tell you how those two verses can be reconciled. Right now, they are not reconciled. They can be reconciled in the phrase, all Israel, if the phrase, all Israel, means something other than the entire nation of ethnic Israel. You with me so far? In fact, that is the only way you can reconcile the apparent contradiction that Paul would be making between verse 14 and verse 26. In addition to that, the heading for chapter 11 in the ESV and actually most other Bible translations is the remnant of Israel. That's the heading. Not all Israel. The remnant of Israel is the heading because the entire context of chapter 11 is about this remnant and not about the entire nation of ethnic Jews. Context is king, remember? Scripture interprets scripture. Paul says, or Paul even says, I should say in verse 5, 
He says, so too at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Then he says, chosen by grace, not chosen because of ethnicity, but chosen by grace. He comes right out and says it in the same chapter that he's not talking about ethnic Israel or the nation of Israel. But he's talking about a remnant chosen by grace. Also, Paul says in verse 6 of this chapter, that because they are chosen by grace, who can rule out the notion that they might be saved by works? Paul says, if they are saved on the basis of works, then grace would no longer be grace. And please remember, we looked at this word, remnant, in our last sermon. What does it mean? It means a small reminder. Doesn't mean an entire nation. Doesn't mean the fullness of a ethnicity. It's a small reminder. Now, please put that on the back burner of your mind. And if you would, turn back to Romans 9 with me. Romans 9. In Romans 9, we know that Paul speaks of his unceasing anguish in regard to the Jews, his kinsmen, he calls them, according to the flesh, because they are, what? Cutting themselves off from Christ due to their unbelief, he says. Remember? Paul makes the point that his kinsmen had all these advantages over everyone else. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises of God. They had the patriarchs. And most important of all, Paul says, for crying out loud, they had from their race according to the flesh, the Christ, who Paul says is what? God over all. The next time Jehovah's Witness comes to your door or a Mormon and says that Jesus Christ is not God, take them to this verse. And despite all that, they rejected him. They rejected their Messiah. But remember, Paul says, beginning in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting Genesis 21, 12. Then in verse 8 of Romans 9, Paul says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So just if we were to stop here, how in the world could we say that Romans 11.26 was talking about the entire ethnic nation of Israel? But, 
Paul says, my kinsmen, the nation of ethnic Israel, had all these advantages as God's chosen nation, as God's chosen people, if you will. And they messed it all up with their obstinate disobedience and refusal to believe in the Messiah. Then Paul says, but God's word didn't fail. Why, Paul? Well, because this was all part of God's plan all along. And, and the plan goes like this. I just read it. For not all who are descended from ethnic Israel belong to Israel. That's the plan. Paul is saying, look, just because you are a Jew by blood or birth does not mean you will be saved. And he goes on to say in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God's plan, bring the Gentiles in, children of promise, right? Whoever believes, whoever has faith. Remember, Paul is very consistent with this, very consistent. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29, Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's plan. Israel still has to put their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be counted righteous, in order to be counted holy, in order to be counted blameless before their God. It will be their faith or lack thereof, that ultimately saves them or condemns them. And the Bible uses the phrase child of the promise to refer to Isaac, the son of God, I'm sorry, Isaac, the son God promised to Abraham and Sarah. Right? The child of the promise, Isaac, the son God promised to Abraham and Sarah. The promise God gave to Abraham, including the provision that God would bless all nations through Abraham's seed. Who is Abraham's seed? <coughs> Jesus. And those who receive that blessing by faith in Jesus are known as the spiritual Children of the promise or the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. This is where Paul uses the phrase, the Israel of God, which is the church, all who are in Christ, all who believe in Abraham's seed. So consequently, 
and therefore too, you are a child of God. You are a child of the promise and you are part of the Israel of God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by your nationality or your ethnicity or the people group you belong to, but by faith. God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, right? That's why he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham was not justified before God because God singled him out and called him a Hebrew. That's not what justified Abraham, although God did do that. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was his faith that secured his destiny, his eternal destiny. So how about you? Everybody on Zoom, how about you? Do you have faith in the child of the promise? Do you understand that if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then God's wrath still rests on you? Do you not understand that your sin separates you from God now and will for all eternity if you are without Christ? Jesus willfully went to the cross and willfully died the most horrific death ever conjured up by men. And on that cross, Jesus took on your sins, my sins, past, present, and future, and he took on the Father's just wrath in your stead so that you can be free from the bondage of sin and death and free from being separated from God for all eternity. Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is. Jesus is the once and for all atoning sacrifice who spilled his blood for you and me. He is not... He is not re-sacrificed on a Roman Catholic altar every time Mass is said by a priest as millions of Catholics around the world have been taught to believe. I know I was once Catholic, as you know. For the scripture says that Jesus offered himself once for all Time, once, as the single sacrifice for sins. That's quote, Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. Once, single sacrifice for sins. And Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, 
who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself. That's Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. It can't be more clear. And that's the other thing that needs to be said. Jesus offered himself. A priest did not offer Jesus. Why? John 17. Hmm. I think I missed the chapter. Anyway, Scripture says, for this reason, this is Jesus talking. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And what was the result of him saying that? There was again a division among the Jews because of Christ's words. It divided them. They didn't like it. Well, some of them did. No priest anywhere has the power through a prayer of consecration to conjure up the real presence of Christ and put him on an altar to be sacrificed again and again and again, multiple masses being said by multiple priests around the world at the same time, on the same day as each priest wills. That is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And in the Middle Ages, it was so bad that they had these huge cathedrals. They had different size altars. There, were, there was the biggest altar, there were larger altars, and there were smaller altars. And one priest would be saying mass on one altar, and another priest would be saying mass on another altar under the same roof, conjuring up Christ to re-sacrifice him over and over and over again to the Father. The bloody sacrifice as the Catholic Catechism calls it. I love my Catholic friends. I love them enough to tell them that they are being sorely misled. Jesus is the one sacrifice who is making perfect those who are being sanctified in him, and he makes intercession for us as our great high priest right now. Hebrews 7.25 He is our eternal high priest. Hebrews 5.6 His priesthood is permanent. It continues forever. Hebrews 7.24 Therefore there is no need. Folks, there's no need for a priest to mediate or intercede for you on this earth. There's no need for a priest to absolve you of your sins. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus, our 
Lord, 1 Timothy 2.5. Now you may be thinking, boy, Mike, you really went off on a tangent here. Not at all. This is where and how the Jews that Paul was speaking to in Romans 9 missed it. Just like the Roman Catholic priest believes that his work of conjuring up Jesus on the altar every time he says mass saves him and everyone present who has been baptized as infants into the Catholic church, just like them. The Jews also tried to justify themselves before God by their ethnic identity and by their works righteousness, their own works righteousness. But everyone's righteousness before God is as filthy rags you must have Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to you. And God said, no, you got it all wrong. You're not justified before me because of your national identity, ethnicity, or by your works. You are justified before me by faith. But you don't believe. You don't believe in my promise for you like your father Abraham believed. You are not justified before me unless you have faith. That and only that is what I will count as righteous. Remember, church, Romans chapter 4, verse 3, all the way back then. It's been a while since we were there. Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this next part is very, very important. Abraham, I'm asking, was he justified by faith before or after he was circumcised in the flesh? It was before. He was circumcised, right? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul says that the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, that would be the Gentiles. So Paul concludes that this was done so that both the circumcised and or the uncircumcised in the flesh, Jew or Gentile, could be justified before God by the same faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, why did I say this is so important? Well, if you would, flip back to Romans 2. Romans 2. In verse 28 of Romans 2, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Etch that on the stone of your mind nor is circumcision outward or physical. 
but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. At this point, I hope you're starting to see where I'm going with this. Paul is saying that the circumcision that counts is the circumcision of the heart, not the flesh. For ethnic Jews who did not believe in Christ as their Messiah, it was the circumcision of the flesh that meant they were saved in their own eyes. They believed that was the first step toward God, circumcising their children on the eighth day. Paul says, no, Mm -mm. it's the circumcision of the heart that comes by way of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you a Jew, he says in Romans 2, 29. He said, that's what makes you a Jew inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter of the law. This is what makes you the spiritual Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. Paul says the same thing if you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 3. Again, Paul is very consistent. Philippians 3, 3 through 5, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then in verse 9 of that same chapter, Paul says, that he will be found to be in Christ if he does not depend on a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but instead righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Then and only then, Paul says, that he will be able to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that he may share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, he might attain the resurrection of the dead. That's Philippians 3. So the Apostle Paul, it's all summed up in this one sentence. The Apostle Paul transfers the circumcision terminology to the church, to the new Israel of God. Now, there are people... In evangelical Christianity today, who do not believe that the church, the New Testament church, is the spiritual Israel of God, despite all of the evidence that I just posited straight from Scripture. These people believe instead that Israel as a nation of people, have separate promises from the promises that the New Testament church has. 
These people typically espouse what we call a premillennial dispensationalist view. Dispensationalism became popular. We've talked about it before in the early 19th century by guys like C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Study Bible, and John Nelson Darby, and then later um, dispensationalism was taken to new and dizzying heights uh, by guys like Hal Lindsey in the 1970s and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the year 2000, which was when the first of a slew of books came out uh, and later even movies. This is where we get ideas like a cashless society, a new world order, locusts in the Bible are military tanks and chariots are fighter jets. And as I said two weeks ago, this is not a series about the end times. It's a series about Romans. And as such, we really don't have time to get into eschatology and in any way to do it any justice. But for our purposes here in our study of Romans, I just want you to know that this notion that the entire nation of Israel will be saved and that all Jews from around the world will be saved is a fairly new thing. It's only been around a little over 100 years. And when I say only been around, I'm not saying that people 1,800 years ago, there wasn't anybody that didn't believe that. I'm just saying that if they did, they were labeled a heretic. The sensationalism about Israel that we see today, a cashless society, which very well may happen, locust chariots, among many other things, is not what the church has believed historically. This is why it's so important to read Christian history. Instead, what I have presented to you in the past two sermons is more in keeping with what the early church believed as far back as the first century, all the way up through our current day. Don't take my word for it. As a matter of fact, we see evidence of this fact that the church taught these things that I just shared as far back as Justin Martyr, who was alive uh, year 100, 165. He is quoted as using the phrase, the true spiritual Israel, and applying it to the New Testament church. The Christian church was very consistent in this regard all throughout the years. For example, John Chrysostom in the 4th century, who is the church father of Eastern Orthodoxy, um, well-respected, has said some goofy things, but so have I, uh, Chrysostom in the 4th century, all the way up through Martin Luther and John Calvin, all believed in the spiritual Israel of the church. 
the very thick lines of demarcation between the nation of Israel and the New Testament church promoted by guys like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye are still being promoted today like never before. They sell a lot of books and a lot of movies. Big money, very big money. In their view, Israel is seen as having separate blessings. This is the dispensationalism coming out, okay? Their view is that Israel is seen as having separate blessings, separate promises apart from a different set of blessings and promises that are applied to the New Testament church. So there's a dichotomy between the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, and the church. Different promises, different outcomes, different places in end-time events, okay? They do, this by, they do this by misapplying Old Testament prophecies and redefining Old Testament prophecies in relation to Israel and the church. Their interpretation of Scripture and their teachings in regard to end-time events are dangerous, especially to new Christians. New Christians fall for this stuff hook, line, and sinker because it's sensationalism. When you say that, or when you, when you start talking to someone about um, the Bible depicting uh, locusts as airplanes and helicopters or chariots as planes, uh, locusts as tanks, I should say, people's ears perk up and they want to hear more. That's interesting stuff. If you start out by telling them that they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus and try to live a life free of sin, they, they don't really want to talk about that very much. I've seen people, quote unquote, come to the Lord over the whole sensationalism of the end times. And then when real doctrine started to be taught to them, they just fall away like nobody's business. My job is to warn you about these things. It's also my responsibility to study the scriptures to the best of my ability to teach them to you. And I do both with fear and trembling. I can assure you. because I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I misinterpret and teach you. But please believe me when I tell you that the Bible teaches plainly that the church, the body of Christ, is the new Israel of God. And please believe me when I tell you that the Bible teaches that both Jews and Gentiles are saved from eternal damnation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works and not by nationalism. Please believe me when I tell you that there is a remnant, but the Bible teaches that it is a remnant made up of Jews and Gentiles, not just Jews. And if you read the verses before Romans 11.26 and you read the verses after Romans 11.26, you will see clearly 
that Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles. In the remnant, not just Jews. The all Israel that we began with this morning in verse 26 of Romans 11 is a spiritual Israel. There's no two ways about it. It's not an ethnic Israel. As I said before, as evidenced by Romans 11, 14, Galatians 6, 16, Philippians 3, 3 through 5, and a whole slew of other scriptures that we just don't have time to look at this morning. But you can look this stuff up and you'll see that there are volumes written on it because the entire Bible posits this teaching, propagates it. Old Testament and New Testament. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, for crying out loud. It's in Christ's lineage. Lastly, I did not forget about our horticulture and dendrology hats that I talked about two weeks ago. We will go over those verses in two weeks. Um, I won't be preaching next week, but I'll be preaching in two weeks. We, just, we don't have time to get into it this morning. We're already um, pressed for time. So let's pray.